Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Henrik, as the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime. Welcome to this week's podcast. Sandra S.G. Wong writes fiction across genres, speaks on writing and publishing topics, and volunteers for important community causes. She's been a finalist in the Arthur Ellis Awards for Excellence in Canadian Crime Writing and longlisted for the Whistler Independent Book Awards. Her next book is a standalone suspense novel coming from HarperCollins, Canada in 2022. Sandra is also the current president of Sisters in Crime National, and we had a wonderful conversation conversation about Sisters in Crime, about writing, about publishing, and a host of other topics. Enjoy the episode. Sandra S.G. Wong is the current president of Sisters in Crime. And so I thought we'd start the, start this podcast talking about Sisters in Crime itself and what it is as an organization and, you know, our goals and our hopes with this podcast that we're producing. So first of all, Thank you for being here, Sandra, and for being the first guest on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Julie. It is an honor to be the inaugural guest. I'm uh, I'm really excited about what this is and the conversations that we're going to have um, about writing. But let's talk first about Sisters in Crime and the organization itself. So do you want to give a little history of oh the my. organization? <laughs> oh, my. I feel like I, all of a sudden I'm taking an exam. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Sisters in Crime was officially... Um, I guess incorporated is the best way to say it, in 1987. That means it's over 30 years now. We're in 2021. For anyone who's not sure, it's 2021. And um, for over 30 years now, Sisters in Crime has been here to support and to advocate for women crime writers. Our community includes um, people who aren't women crime writers. Our community includes all sorts of people. Anyone who's interested in crime writing, in uh, reading crime fiction, or even true crime, things that are related to writings about crime, I guess, is, is one way to say it. So we have members who are uh, librarians, um, readers, booksellers, of course, authors, uh, people who are not yet authors but want to be, um, editors, you know, agents. So I guess it's, it's a really full, rich community. We were founded, Sisters in Crime was founded on, on the mission to abdicate for and support and promote women crime writers. And of course, um, as all good things do as they age and mature, you know, we've expanded our, I guess our borders, our parameters. Uh, and we are all about, um, creating an equitable and inclusive uh, community, a crime writing community, crime writing lovers community is, is another way to say it. So that's kind of a, not quite a compact nutshell, but 
a nutshell of a sort of, you know, that's what we're about. So we have, we have supports for writers. Uh, we have lots and lots of chapters all across the states, two in Canada, which is where I'm from. Um, and, um, we, uh, have programming for writers, programming for readers. Um, yeah, there's just so much going on. It's like, how can I encapsulate all this? You know, just go to the website is, <laughs> is the best way, sistersincrime.org and, and explore if you want to know more about us and you're not, not sure where to start. That is the place to start. I think one of the strengths of the organization is that it was founded with an advocacy eye, mm-hmm. so that it was founded to create change. And Sisters in Crime, from the very beginning, embraced that, that we wanted to make make it better, mm-hmm. make it better for starting with women, but we've in, you know widened the tent and embraced a larger community over the years so that um, in, in addition to supporting writers uh, at various points of their craft or helping learn the business of writing, we also um, advocate for underrepresented writers and, uh, you know, um, we, we support self-published writers in different ways. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot to sisters in crime, um, because of the passion we feel because of our, our founding mission. Don't you agree with that? Absolutely. I I love that you brought up, uh, self-publishing, you know, and indie authors, because when I joined sisters in crime, I was an indie author, um, and uh, it, I have found it supportive. And I know that there's there's been a history, hasn't there, within the publishing yes. community and the writing community um, with respect to self-publishing. And I think one of the things I, I really appreciated about Sisters in Crime is how inclusive the organization is. You know, we we are like, if you like crime writing, if you're a crime writer, if you're a crime reader, um, we would love to have you. We would love you ha- to have you join us in this shared love and this, and building this community. Um, yeah, it's interesting thing with, you know, organizations like this. You, we have thousands of members now, thousands of members that blows my mind in, in the most wonderful way. <laughs> And everyone has their own um, niche of interest, even within crime writing or crime reading. Um, they may be a bookseller and a writer, a librarian and a reader and a writer. There are just so many, you know, different ways to belong to this community. And it's interesting to have an organization like we are founded on changing the status quo. So how do you keep doing that? How, how does an organization keep growing when change is the thing we were based on? And that's been one very interesting challenge that I have really enjoyed exploring <laughs> as, as a member. And now, you know, in this very privileged position as president of, of, of the national organization. It's so funny too, just a quick note to say when I say national, uh, but I'm, from Canada. I'm based in Canada. So when I talk to some chapter uh, siblings in Canada, I have to remember, oh, you you know, I'm saying national, but I guess we're sort of international, aren't we? <laughs> because it's, yeah. you know, it was founded in the States, but now we have chapters outside of the States and, and hopefully uh, we'll continue to grow that as well. 
Absolutely. And our chapters are interesting. We have almost 60 um, internationally. And so some of them are large, some of them are small, some of them are, uh, you know, cover a large area, some of them cover a small area, Mm -hmm. but they're all um, formed individually and chartered by Sisters in Crime National, but, you know, they, they, they serve their own communities as well. And so that's another mm-hmm. strength. And our members can be members of as many chapters as they want as yeah. well, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. It's, um, it's a wonderful organization and, uh, you are a wonderful president of the board and it's not a small job being president of the board of Sisters in Crime National. (laughs) So hats off to you for doing it and thank you for your service, but we get to do fun things like start a podcast. Right. Um, while you're here. And the focus of this podcast is going to be about our writing journeys, uh, you know, with, with our process and different, different ways that we all approach it because there's no one way to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to embrace that. And uh, I always learn when I talk to people about their own journey, something that I can maybe adapt to my own. So that's a, this is a great reason uh, to have these conversations as well. But I thought that the first thing we could start with is how did you start writing? You know, <laughs> when did it click into your brain that you wanted to do this? Oh, my. Um, Okay, we must go back into the mist of time. Please imagine imagine a seven-year-old Sandra. And um, I remember my teacher, and I I don't remember my teacher's name, but we had a little writing exercise she gave us. We each got a little um, rectangle that she had cut out from uh, wallpaper. They were wallpaper snippets. Uh, swaths and she passed them out and she asked each of us to write something based on what we saw what the little piece of paper we got so I got uh I got stripes and they were magenta burgundy um fuchsia with you know white very thin white lines in between the thicker stripes of those colors and I wrote a little thing about people <laughs> under the sea I still remember this I don't remember exactly what I wrote I remember the tiny little piece of paper do you remember as children we would get these little half sheets maybe even yeah. a quarter sheet or third sheet of paper and the top would be blank and then you'd have your little ruled blue lines so I remember writing something about people, and my teacher was so delighted that um, she took me to the principal's office for a good reason. It was it was amazing uh, to show the principal what I had written because she was so delighted with what I had done. So I guess I guess that's the origin of not only my my love of writing, but um, my chasing after that <laughs> that feedback. <laughs> That positive feedback. So it got meshed in me from a very young age. I was seven. And and that's my earliest memory of writing something. And then, you know, at the same time, it's it's mashed up with getting positive feedback. I guess I've been chasing that ever since. Um, (laughs) You know, and then, you know, fast forward in junior high, as we all do, we, we, we always have a special teacher, right, who supported us. And when I was in junior high, uh, Mrs. Duff, Mrs. Elizabeth Duff, she was so encouraging of my writing. And I ended up writing a, um, 
My first longer piece was a, a short story, and it was a parody of a romance novel, <laughs> of a romance story. I don't know why, where I got that from, but I, I did a very um, melodramatic satire, <laughs> and I got to hand that in instead of a book report um, because I I was a voracious reader then too. So I was reading so many books, and I was bored of writing book reports, and so I I asked her, could I could I just write you a thing instead and and she loved it. I still remember the paper clipped um, pages, the three hole punch. They had holes in them. They were lined. I still remember that all written out by hand uh, in the, this would have been the mid eighties. So um, yeah. And you know, I ended up going to university and doing a degree in English literature, which meant I wrote no fiction, no mm -hmm. fiction whatsoever for four years. And then, uh, you know, life got in the way. And then fast forward again, when I had um, started a family, and I thought, maybe this would be a good time to start writing fiction and see see what happens. So I did uh, create a first novel out of that strange uh, urge. Um, it's absolutely terrible. It is mm -hmm. possibly the worst thing I've ever written. <laughs> And um, I don't regret it at all because I feel like I got it out of my system. I wrote something so bad, um, and I was and I and I survived. So that gave yeah. me the courage to keep going. It went really, it really was terrible. My my husband read it to this day. He's like, yeah, I I mean, I think you could say it was mostly done, but there were some gaping holes in there, um, and so. I don't dispute that. Yeah, it was genuinely horrifyingly bad. <laughs> but, you know, I was trying to write something that didn't feel natural to me. I was trying to write what, you know, the great Canadian novel. Um, yeah, that, that did, didn't work for me. That did, did not resonate with me, and, and you could tell. <laughs> so. But it taught you how to write a... A novel, which is you know a huge undertaking that you, yeah. you you almost need to learn how to do that. I think well for me and you know people learn different ways; they have different styles mm -hmm. of learning. So for me, that taught me uh, that I could put in hours and hours and hours. I could fail and I could keep going. And I think at some level, that sometimes is what it means to be an author. You just put in hours and hours and hours and you will get that draft or multiple drafts that just don't work. And then what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? Are you just going to cry in the corner? Yes, we can do that. Just don't only do that, you know? <laughs> like, yes, have a good cry. Feel terrible and then pick yourself up and, and get back at it. <laughs> Now, you write in different genres mm -hmm. as well. So can you talk about, you know, your path towards writing mysteries and suspense and also what else you write in? Because I think being a genre writer is also a little bit of a different journey than when you have a degree in English Lit, for example. Right. Um, you may expect that you're going to be following. Right. Yes. As I said, I tried writing that great Canadian novel, um, and Canadian literature has a very specific sort of tradition. And I didn't, I couldn't quite situate myself in that tradition. Um, you know, our Canadian classics are, 
uh, often set in the prairies. They're often set in small towns. Um, they're often about alienation, which is a universal theme, I think. But I grew up reading science fiction and fantasy. Um, from the teenage years, I started reading romance novels. I've been reading crime since I was in elementary school. I started with Nate the Great. Uh, detective. Some people will recognize that series and some, some may not, but Nate the Great Detective is, um, you know, a school aged child solving mysteries in the neighborhood. So, um, with a much more jaundiced view of humanity than Encyclopedia Brown, <laughs> which I also read, of course. Um, I never got into Nancy Drew, though, unfortunately, or the Hardy Boys. But I did read uh, Alfred Hitchcock's The Three Investigators. I think I found them at the library. I love the library. Who does not love the library? I don't know. Uh, so anyway, I found that once I, you know, failed at the great Canadian novel, it freed me to go back to and think about what were the genres that I know that I'm comfortable with reading and um, what what do I want to do about that? So I came to, you know, mystery writing, crime writing. I say crime writing because it's I, I find it more of an umbrella term, but also the, the first um, crime books that I wrote, they have a dash of that speculative fiction element. So I have ghosts and magic and, um, it's an alternate history. So, <laughs> so I feel like if I say crime writing, that can encompass all of that, right? Because we know there's so many yep. subgenres, subgenres in, in crime fiction. Um, so that's why I keep saying crime writing instead of mystery or, or thriller and stuff. And also, you know, those, those labels are, they're not necessarily how we writers think of what we write. You know, that's sort of like the business side when, when we have to think about marketing or, or if we're publishing with a, a publisher, then the marketing department has to think about, well, work, how can we label this? But I feel like as writers, we just write what we write, you know? So, um, when I came up with the idea for this, uh, my first, series, my first book in the series, um, ended up being a series, I should say. I just felt like these elements kept jumping out at me like, Oh, and what about, what if this were the way it was? And what if <laughs> that were the way it was? And, you know, at that time I wasn't thinking about what's this genre, what is this label? I was just thinking about what's the story, you know, that I, I want to tell and what's the setting. Um, yeah. So for me, it started with the character, uh, with that question that popped up in my head in the middle of the night, which is, you know, what, what if the femme fatale were the hard boiled PI? What, what could that look like? I mean, and granted, I'd been going through all of Raymond Chandler, so that <laughs> might have had something to do with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I was a new mother at the time and, I was reading a lot of Chandler when I could, uh, I guess because it was so far removed from my actual lived experience at the time, <laughs> diapers and feedings and complete lack of sleep. So uh, I don't know why I just dove into Chandler at that point in my life. And then, um, so I was definitely in a, you know, crime fiction frame of mind uh, when I, when I really thought maybe I could actually try and do this myself for real. Uh, in a genre that felt more natural to me. 
Is that, does that even answer your question, Julie? I don't it even know. It does answer my question. I mean, and that's your first series uh, that you wrote as S.G. Wong, correct? That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, the yeah. Lola Stark series of novels. And then um, I was just saying this the other day uh, that I created this world for Lola. It's an alternate history. And uh, I... I I based that world on a city called Crescent City. So I love that world so much because I spent so much time making it up. Uh, I thought, well, I think I'd like to write some short stories that, that help me explore the city, you know, the world that I've created. Um, and so that's what I do. So I have Crescent City short stories and then Lola Stark novels. And so the short stories for me are super fun, uh, also because they usually feature a character that's like a minor character in one of the novels. So then I get to, mm, take a look at the city from a different perspective or I get to describe Lola from an outsider's perspective. And, and that's a lot of fun. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. So you just talked about world building, which is a big part of process, especially when you're creating an alternate reality. Um, but can you talk a little bit about your writing process and what it's like for you to come up with an idea or write a novel or, or right. how you approach it? Okay, sure. <laughs> um, I, For me, everything starts with the character. And I, I, it could be a little bit different because when you have a series protagonist, um, I feel like I, I have to get pretty clear about who that character is for me. I really need to understand her as a person, as a, a person in her community, as a person in her family. Um, and then, you know, part of the fiction part is coming up with, well, what kind of situations can I throw her into? that'll make her life really, really hard. Because for me, that's fun. (laughs) That's fun. So um, I made her a private investigator so that, uh, you know, I could have people come into her lives and, and explore different aspects of the world I've created, but also, you know, force her to explore herself during the course of of a novel or a a number of novels or whatever it might be. And I also like to, I just daydream a lot about what would make Lola's life difficult and then what would I need to make those things happen? So other characters, other settings, what preposterous um, cases could she be taking on? A missing person? Could it be a kidnapping? Uh, I don't necessarily want I don't necessarily have her looking at murders, uh, homicides, and, and deaths. They're usually, you know, going to be involved, but that's usually a police matter. So as a private investigator, I, I also create the situation where she could be sort of on the fringe as well. Mm-hmm. And how does she, how can she deal with that? So it's all about difficulties. I know that different, um, different world cultures will have different storytelling traditions, but I grew up here in, you know, a westernized uh, society in Canada. So I'm very much used to thinking of stories in terms of, of conflicts. What are the conflicts and what, what needs to be done to solve them? And what does solving a conflict mean for each different character involved? So yeah, I think as, as many writers, as many other writers are, I am also someone who loves to observe people, other people. And especially observe them in extreme situations 
as well as everyday situations, right? You, you need to have, you can't have your, <laughs> you can't have your readers on the edge of their seats all the time, right? You need to have normal elements as well. So I don't know. It's just like, in a, it's just like putting all that stuff in a blender and then seeing, um, seeing how it tastes. That's a strange metaphor. I'm not sure I like that one, but whatever. <laughs> And do you, so some more questions about your process. Mm. Do you write every day? Do you have a word count goal or, or how do you, how do you get a novel together? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you write that novel? Yeah. So in terms of the mechanics, um, I always start with an outline, but I just only recently discovered, um, someone talked about a process, um, Oh yes, it was Alyssa Cole. I was just, I just watched her on, um, at a conference, uh, online conference. And she said that she learned a new term called, um, a scenester, which is opposed to a plotter or a pantser, which I'm sure most of us have heard about. So pantsers just start writing and see where it goes. Plotters will often be the ones using an outline. And apparently a scenester is someone who, um, will write out things by scene. Uh, so I, I kind of do that in my outline. Um, I have very detailed outlines. I just write the scenes that come into my head because I'm a very visual person. So I will write the story based on the scenes that come into my head. And that's my outline. It can be very detailed in terms of sometimes I'll include the dialogue that pops up. Sometimes I'll include what people are wearing and other times it'll be a single line. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I just know this has to be the end of the scene. (laughs) And then I move on to the next part of the outline. So, um, and I'm sure people who use, um, excuse me, Scrivener probably are very familiar with writing in scenes or people who are coming from playwriting or screenwriting will know all about writing in scenes. So then um, I do the outline and that might take me however many weeks it takes me. And I, I do try and write every, um, uh, weekday because I have children and they do school. So that's when I, I do my writing. And, um, then after I get the outline, then I'll do what I call the first draft, which is again, you put, I put everything in there, everything I can think of related to any research I did, related to anything I see in my head. Um, and I just worry about editing after because I feel like I, I got to get everything down first before I start culling. So I try my best not to have the editor brain on during the outline or the first draft. Um, there's plenty of time for the editor brain <laughs> to come to the fore, you know, later in the process. Yeah, so I will write... You know, I'll try to write at least two hours a day. Doesn't always happen because life, life is what it's going to be. Um, I'm not often a, I don't really like rules. So I'm not a must write every day or else I failed. I don't have a word count unless I'm on a really tight deadline for something. Then yes, I'll have to break it down into a word count, but, um, yeah. Yeah. There are no rules. I think whatever works. So some days I'll go hard and some weeks I should say I'll go hard and other weeks I'm hardly going. <laughs> <laughs> well, this brings me to a question that I always find interesting. What's the best piece of writing advice you've ever gotten? And what's the worst piece of writing advice you've ever gotten? 
I think, I think I've probably everyone can guess based on what I, I just finished saying is I think the worst piece was any piece that told me you have to, other than maybe the best piece then related is just write the book, just write it. <laughs> or maybe it's, maybe I should refine that. Just finish writing the book. <laughs> Finish the book, finish it. Because if you don't finish it, you've got nothing. You just got part of a book. And is that really what you want? And usually that's not what we want. We want to finish that book. We want to write that book. So, um, backing up a little bit, the worst I think is anytime someone says you must, you have to, and otherwise you will, you're not doing it right. I don't think there's a right way to write a book, um, except that you finish it and then you keep working until you, you feel, um, satisfied. That might not be the right word until you feel <laughs> that it is in a form that you can be happy with. Right. And at which point then you've got the outside editors or, or whomever to, to help you polish it up into the best story it can be. But, um, I think anyone who thinks you have to only do it a certain way, um, they might not have, they might not have the best advice for you. Right. So yeah, yeah, the best advice. Yeah. Your advice about finishing is so important because I think that, uh, new writers, feel like they need to go back and edit as their mind changes onto a character arc or they want to add something or, you know, so that they, they keep fixing. Do you edit as you go or do you, you, since you outline, you likely have a very strong first draft. Do you wait, finish a draft and go back and do it again? Or or what's your editing process like? Well, a quick point too about, um, using the outline. So for me, the outline is like, it's like the scaffold. It's the framework, but I am not, um, I'm not, you know, tied to it. So uh, I've gone two thirds into a a draft and realized the outline did not work. Uh, so I did, I didn't follow the rest of it (laughs) because it wasn't working as, as I was actually drafting, it was not working at all. I mean, I remember toiling for a week on this one spot in the outline because it just wasn't coming. It couldn't work for me, even though I had the outline in front of me, you know, it told me exactly what I was supposed to do. But as I was writing, I I was feeling like that character would not do that. That character would not say that this is not working. (laughs) Oh my God. You know, of course I cried in the corner for a bit, got over that. And then I, I went back and I just started writing. Right. And I left the outline. So I don't want anyone to, to, you know, I'm not saying that the outline is the end all be all, (laughs) even if you like to outline, I think you've got to be flexible. So having said that, um, oh my gosh, what was your question, Julie? It was about about your editing process. Editing. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, so I like to just write. If I'm drafting, that's drafting time. That's the writer brain. I think if I switch too often between writer brain, editor brain during a, uh, even a single week, um, it doesn't work for my creative process. Then the writing brain is like, wait, <laughs> what am I supposed to be doing? Am I, what, what? So I like to just give the writer brain, um, as much time as possible, long stretches of time to draft. And then I'll go back and edit. But 
that's not to say that, you know, sometimes you do, you do suddenly get an insight like, oh, there's that huge hole. <laughs> I just realized there's a huge hole. That's what taking notes is for. So I always have, um, of notes. I'm just, I'm looking off to my side as I talk to you, Julie, because I have a stack of paper next to me because I, right now I'm in the middle of editing. And so I wrote down a whole bunch of notes while I was, you know, well, during my last draft so that now I'm looking at them and doing the editing now. But, um, yes, notes, pen and paper, I could not do without pen and paper. I'm not sure about this whole paperless society we've been hearing about for decades. I don't know that that's ever going to happen for writers, but, uh, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever works. So yeah, that's my editing process. And then, you know, you turn your editing brain on, uh, and, um, it's so funny. You have to turn the writer brain on. You're going through your manuscript and you see, oh, okay, that, that sentence didn't work. But you don't want to spend a whole day trying to craft the perfect sentence or paragraph right there. You just, you do the editing, you cut, you paste, you, you know, you change things and you've got to move on, finish a whole edit and then let it sit. So I usually, if I, after I finish a draft, I'll do my best to leave that draft alone for two weeks so I can, um, it's unlikely I'll forget what, <laughs> what I wrote. But I might forget all the little things that I got hung up on while I was writing. And that's kind of the point, right? You, you just want to give your brain enough space to breathe and remember that, oh, maybe I can actually do this. Maybe I'm, I can write and it's okay if I find mistakes. I, I don't have to feel like this is the end of my career. <laughs> you know, all of those, like the worst case scenarios you come up with. So yeah, I like to give two weeks between drafting and editing. And when I finish editing, it depends on the book. Sometimes I can go back right away and, um, you know, make the big changes if it's developmental. Of course, copy editing is different, right? That's like the little niggly details. And I mean, I could do that forever. Uh, and at some point I have to stop that. So it's a good thing I usually have deadlines. <laughs> like copy edits. You must have a deadline, must send it back to someone else by X day, or else I could probably keep fiddling, looking for the perfect word. <laughs> I think it's so helpful for people to hear about the difference between the writing brain and the editing brain mm -hmm. and the giving space to your drafts mm -hmm. and how, how helpful that can be yeah. um, as yeah. well. Yeah. Well, and I think too, you know, all the little tricks, especially for, um, for indie authors, so from, in my experience as an indie author, so I, I've done both now. I've had a traditional publisher. I have a, a, a book with a traditional publisher coming out. So I'm in the middle of edits for that in that process. But as an independent author, as an indie, you, you have to also learn how to edit yourself really well. You do want to have outside editors for sure, but you also want to be able to, to, um, be efficient in how you work, right? Because you're also the business boss and you, you know, you have a deadline and you, you don't want to keep pushing it back because you have to promise you, you put up links, you put up pre-order, you've told, you know, your readers, you, you can't keep messing around with your deadlines. So as an, as an indie, um, all the little tricks, like, you know, changing the font on your manuscript so you can read it differently than when you were writing it. Mm -hmm right? Just to signal your brain. Or um, some people like to read it out loud while they're editing so that they can see or hear 
the the changes that are needed or the things that don't work. I mean, reading out loud is in general really great. Um, I found because <laughs> for some reason your brain works differently reading versus hearing. Um, if you have that ability, you know, then you can see like that really, that didn't work at all. And that's a terrible word. Why am I using a four syllable <laughs> word when I could use a two syllable word? So things like that, um, just little, little clues for your brain to turn off the writer, turn on the editor or vice versa, whatever that is. So I like those, I learned those little tips and tricks, um, trial and error and also reading blogs, <laughs> reading, reading blogs by other writers. Uh, yeah. Indie authors have webinars. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, those are all great, great pieces of advice. And you just touched on something that I'd love to, to talk about mm. next. You know, our writing journey is, is one part, but being published or getting published is a, is a separate journey. I mean, it's, it's not right. the same. Right. Um, so when you talked about being an indie author and you're going to be on two, you know, two different publishing journeys, which many people are these days, there are right. a lot of hybrid authors. Um, can you tell me what your publishing journey has been like? And is it what you expected when you first started uh, writing your novel and dreaming right. of being published? Is it what you expect? Right. I can answer that second question right away with no, in no way has this been <laughs> anything I expected whatsoever. <laughs> there, there's a definitive answer. <laughs> Short it's an excellent definitive point. answer. <laughs> yeah. So if, you know, if you can indulge me for a bit, um, in terms of just telling a little bit of the publishing story of mine, I actually, um, the, the, I was published originally my debut novel called die on your feet. Now it was published through an ebook first imprint of a large publisher. So my first publisher was Karina press and they are an imprint of Harlequin. Um, so I didn't know anything about eBooks. I was not in that world at all. As a newbie, you know, writer, newbie author. Um, so I learned some hard lessons about marketing and promotion. Um, I was not great at it at all as a newbie, which is not to say that they had zero supports. The publisher had a new author, uh, listserv. All for newbie authors, you could join, you could ask all your questions, and there were lots of people on there, super supportive. I'm guessing it was a lot like the Sisters in Crime Guppies chapter, which is all online, has, you know, people who are newly published or, or trying to get published, as well as some veterans who are willing to share and mentor. So I think the new author listserv for Karina Press at that time uh, was probably similar to the Guppies. But I have to say, Julie, I was terrified of doing something wrong. And I was so scared of um, embarrassing myself with how little I knew. I didn't even join the listserv. I just didn't even lurk. You know, wow. I, I didn't even want to lurk because I thought, what if I, what if I discover that I'm even worse than I fear? Isn't that, wow. I know. I think yeah. back to then and I think, what were you thinking, Sandra? Like, but that's where I was. I was so scared of doing something wrong. Um, I couldn't even bear the thought of like asking for help. And this was literally there to help me. 
So, yeah. So I, I missed out on a lot of opportunities to learn how to um, be a new author, a debut author. So you can guess that book did not do well. It did not sell very well at all. And I didn't understand how to promote ebooks. I was very much coming from, you know, print books, um, tradition and history. And that was what I bought as well. I always bought print books. Um, so it came about that the, the sales were so terrible. And my publisher said to book two, you know, we really like you, Sandra. They're very kind people. Let me just say this. They were very kind, <laughs> very kind, very lovely people who worked at Karina Press. And then I also had to work with some people uh, who were actually in the Harlequin section of things. Um, they were lovely, very kind. And my editors were like also the editor who had picked me out of the slush because it was an unagented submission, wow. that editor left Karina. So I was, uh, I was stranded. <laughs> that editor left and I, my second manuscript, which they had the rights to, to take a look at first, it got, it just fell through the cracks. The editor that was assigned me lost track of me. Um, and then they assigned me to someone else and it took a long time for her to read the book and she hadn't really known what I was doing with the first book. So she came back to me, as I said, kind, lovely. She said, yeah, we really don't want this book. Sorry. Wow. <laughs> we don't want, if you write something else though, please come back to us, but we don't want this book. So, um, I had sold the first book, uh, knowing that it would be the first of a series. And I had, you know, I had told them that, um, and so now I was stuck with a book that no one wanted and I couldn't sell anywhere else. Nobody else wanted a book to, no agent wanted to, um, represent yeah. me and no, you know, publisher of the ones who were accepting unagented <laughs> submissions, nobody wanted a second book. So I thought, Oh, what am I going to do? Should I give up? No, that was like, you know, that was a momentary question. Cause I, I couldn't, I still have so many stories for this character, um, and this world that I painstakingly created. So I thought, well, maybe I should, I should figure out if I can self-publish. Like, what does that entail? That was a learning curve. Let me tell you, there's so much work involved. I am in awe of successful indie authors, the work involved, all the different aspects. Cause not only are you responsible for the creative process and the creative, um, end result of a book, you are also responsible for all the business decisions, all the aesthetic decisions about the covers and the interior layouts. And like, don't get me wrong. I'm a total design nerd. So I loved, I loved figuring out layout and like, what font do I want? And, Oh, what about what the fonts on the covers? I love doing all that stuff, but it takes a lot of time. Yeah. A lot of time and energy. So I decided I would try it. <laughs> and so I, I put out, um, I put out a print edition of that first ebook. And, um, and again, kudos to Karina. And, and I ended up working with, uh, the Harlequin contracts department, but I was able to negotiate partial rights reversion. So they gave oh, me the print, print rights back so that I could put out my own books, my own versions. Um, and I appreciated that because they really did not have to do that. 
They really didn't. They could have said, "Sorry, kiddo. <laughs> yeah. See you in seven years when you can ask for all the rights back." But until then, <laughs> no. They were like, "Okay, we understand your situation. We we see what you're saying, and okay, you can have the print rights." So from there, I just put out the print edition, and I did two more books, um, and then I took a little bit of a break as an indie author. And um, fast forward to 2019, 2018, and I got this idea uh, for a book while I was on vacation. And I wrote it. It was a genre I'd never written before. It was, um, I guess we would call it suspense, domestic suspense. Um, and I felt like it was a much more commercial book than the Lola Stark series. Because I'll be honest with you, when I talk to agents and editors about the Lola Stark series trying to sell book two, they were very clear with me. They said, we don't know what to do with this series of yours, this mm -hmm. book. It's too many, too many genres. It's, it's got ghosts, it's got magic, but it's set in a alternate history. It is the 1930s era. Like, are you, what do you want to do? <laughs> it's hard boiled. There's some noir. I said, mm -hmm, yes, all, to, <laughs> all of the above. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is all those things. And they said, well, we, our marketing department doesn't know what to do with it. We don't know where to put it on the shelf. And, um, and I said, okay, great. So fast forward. And I had this more, you know, commercial book, I thought, and I thought, well, I've been an indie author. I don't know that I have what it takes to be as successful as the most successful indie authors because I can't write um, three or four books a year. I have discovered I can't do that. I can't do it to the level of mm, quality mm -hmm. for my stories that I want. And I mean, as again, I am in awe of the indie authors who can do that and they write great books and they write three or four of them a year. Wow. I cannot do that. So I thought, well, maybe I can try and, and come back into traditional publishing, you know, and then off, I'm basically trying to offload the business side of it in terms of, you know, covers and marketing and promotion and, and PR and all that kind of stuff. And maybe I could try and have a, a publisher's marketing department behind me and see how that goes. So I decided to um, find an agent for this book. In a way, it felt like it would be proof of concept. If mm -hmm. an agent, you know, if a, a reputable, experienced agent thought they could sell the book, then that, to me, proved that, okay, my instincts were pretty good. You know, maybe I can do this thing <laughs> called publishing. <laughs> um, and then, luckily, I was able to um, sell this book, and it's coming out next year in 2022. Um, yeah, from uh, Harper Canada. So that it's exciting for me to see what that, this part of the journey will be like. So, yeah. um, it's funny how you, you said being an Indian also traditionally publishing was like two publishing journeys. But for me, it's really, it's really the same thing. It's really the same thing with a few detours, uh, detours to places I didn't know existed. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, learning things I didn't know that I would ever need to know. And then meandering back to see, well, what's, what's over that next rise and let's see what this is, what this is like. So that's sort of how I approach this career. Um, it's an adventure. <laughs> well, even traditionally published authors need to understand marketing and, mm -hmm. and, you know, have a lot of infrastructure built into. So do you feel like you're 
you're ahead of the curve a little bit with this new novel that's coming out or are you reinventing yourself for this new, because it is a different genre, right? You know, how are you approaching that? Yeah. I think as with anyone who's, who's been doing this a while, you learn so much along the way. And especially, you know, when you're in community with other writers and, um, if you're, if you're lucky enough to be able to go to in-person conferences and conventions. And nowadays this past year, plus um, being able to go to online events where you get to hear how other people deal with how they publish and how they market and how they write, you learn a lot. And I, I love, um, I love being a student. So I just pay attention to how things are done by lots of different people. So I don't know that I could say I'm ahead of the curve because I, I feel like the minute I say that, I'm going to jinx myself and I'm going <laughs> I'm to I'm find out something that everybody else knows that I did not, <laughs> which honestly, like in all seriousness, that would be fine too. That would be fine because um, there's always something to learn. I think maybe what I'm, maybe my experience has taught me is that if I can stay open to learning new things, then... Um, this sounds so weird. There'll always be something new to learn. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so then it, it doesn't get boring. It doesn't get tiring. Sometimes it is exhausting in terms of, um, it's a system we're all plugging ourselves into, right. As authors, even if you're an independent, even, even if you're an indie or self-published, there's a system now for self-publishing. I think we all know this, uh, self-publishing has been around long enough that the systems are set up and, and some of the inequities that we saw in traditional publishing have, have also ported themselves over to indie publishing. And so, um, for me as a woman of color, uh, also as a Canadian in an international, you know, or U.S. based market, there are a lot of things that I don't have easy access to. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. I feel like those things could counter sometimes, in all honesty. They could counter everything that I've already learned and what might one, what, what, excuse me, what one might think would put me ahead of the curve. Maybe it just puts me even. I don't know. That's made sound really vague, but like, I think we all know there's so many things out of our control in publishing and, um, trying to control that. Maybe that's a good piece of advice. Don't try and control that (laughs) because you can't, right? The only thing we can control as authors is, are the stories we write. Right. And as you, your advice of keep learning and, and figuring things out because Mm. you may have learned a marketing technique that worked for a long time. And all of a sudden it doesn't work anymore (laughs) because an algorithm changed or, you know, so if you invest in one way of doing the publishing side too heavily, then you're not going to be ready and be nimble to make the changes you need to make. That's right. I mean, for example, I sunk in some money, um, taking a course, on, um, it was aimed at indie authors. It was for, uh, Facebook ads, how to, you know, I can't remember the name of it now, but I paid a few hundred dollars for that course. And then 
things changed. And yeah. I thought, well, am I going to sink some more hundreds of dollars to take the updated course that this other person is offering? I don't think so. So I just, you know, th- that was a sunk cost. It was gone. I wasn't going to get it back. Um, I also divested of Facebook, if I can say that. I took myself off of Facebook. It was, it was a personal choice, right? Uh, and, um, I know that as an indie author, <sighs> Facebook can be a real engine for driving people to your site and, and selling books. And I gave that up voluntarily. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you, there's gotta be a, a willingness to be flexible, um, when you can, right? So I, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not going to be doing ads on Facebook. Goodbye, hundreds of dollars on that course. <laughs> well, if I, and I think that being an active decision maker mm. sounds like that's where you've evolved. Also, as the on the business side and as a writer, is you know at the beginning of your career you were afraid of joining a listserv, and oh now gosh. you're actively making decisions about where you're going to be present and how you're going to right. uh, use your resources. Right. And, and I think that, that that shows a path as well. Right. Well, thank you for encapsulating that. I don't, I, I've never, never really thought like, oh, how far I've come from that, you know, newbie author terrified of joining a listserv. Like, I can't believe that was me, but I can believe that was me. <laughs> But I think time. a lot of people will be able to to feel like that. I mean, mm. you know, my first Sisters in Crime meeting, I was a nervous wreck about even going in the door. Really? I mean, it's just this is this is you know part of our journey is getting the courage to to show right. up, right? right? Especially when it's important to you and you want to write and you want to get published and everything yeah. else. Yeah, that's scary to say it out loud. Um, so what does Sisters in Crime mean to you? What is, what does Sisters in Crime played in your journey? Oh my gosh. Um, I've been a member since 2014. I discovered Sisters in Crime at a Canadian conference. They had a little table there. They had a, um, at that point there was only one chapter in Canada and they were, uh, in Toronto. They still are in Toronto. And it was the only Canadian chapter you could join. <clears throat> they handed out materials. They just waxed poetic about this community. And so, um, I thought, Oh, community sounds like a good idea. And I don't have to lurk on a listserv. I can, I can join and maybe get some emails sometimes from the chapter. So I, even though I live in, in the Western province, um, I joined Toronto <laughs> chapter because it was available. And, um, I just wanted to feel like I wasn't so alone writing my little crime novels out here in the prairies. And then I discovered, you know, um, being of service. So I, I was contacted by someone saying, Hey, we would like to start a, uh, Western Canada chapter. Like, you know, are you, would you be interested in helping out with that? And so I ended up being one of the, four, there's only four of us, um, (laughs) working to make it happen. And, uh, I got to be, my first position was vice president. And then, um, our president sadly had to leave unexpectedly to deal with some personal stuff. And, and I, all of a sudden I, I read the bylaws closely and it said, Oh, you have to step in to be president when you're vice president. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I learned my lesson. Read the bylaws before you say yes to joining a board. <laughs> yes. Yes, very important. <laughs> very important, very important. So I, I, as stepping into president, I got to help um, get our chapter chartered officially and all of that stuff, uh, which was, yeah. But in doing that work and, you know, being of service to my community, my maybe closer geographical community than Toronto, um, I discovered that... <sighs> Finding support and being of support were really important to me. Uh, it is, it can be really lonely. It can feel lonely writing because when I write, I'm, I'm sure other people are the same. I don't like other people around me. Um, I can do coffee shop writing, but not if it's a first draft. No way. <laughs> I can edit in a coffee shop. No problem. But when I'm drafting, I'm, I'm really by myself. Uh, I'm just in my head. I'm really just in my head. And sometimes uh, it's it feels lonely. So knowing that there are other people probably going through the same thing <laughs> uh, and that um, there are thousands of people who are also figuring out their stories, who are also trying to share their stories, even though it's a right now it's a virtual community. We don't we're not seeing one another. Even when I, when we were seeing one another as a, as a writer in the prairies with not a lot of other crime writers around me, it was just really, um, uh, heartening to know that if I was feeling isolated and, and too much in my solitude, I could, I could just sign up for something, some, a course, could register for something. I could, um, you know, get on the, get on a listserv and see what other people are doing. I could, you know, stuff like that. So I know, I, I think I'm saying the same thing over and over again in different ways, but, um, community has, yeah. has what is what it's meant to me. Yeah. Sisters in crime is all about community. For all sure. about community. And I really love that. I think because the organization was founded on advocacy for an underrepresented group at that time, right, which women crime writers, that we continue to think and look for who else is underrepresented? Who mm -hmm. else could Sisters in Crime support? It might not be in our, you know, founding uh, mission because when you found an organization just like logistically, legally, you say your mission, you're stuck. That's yeah. It is what it is. But I think the great thing is I see other uh, Sisters in Crime siblings, even the fact that we now say siblings. It used to be everyone would say, oh, sisters. We're all sisters. And then, of course, there were um, people who joined who weren't women. And then it became sisters and misters, which was, it's adorable. I mean, I get it. It's totally adorable. And, and now we're moving into, you know, the second decade of the 21st century. And now we're, we're a little bit more aware. We're like widening our, our, um, our gaze. Mm -hmm. And we know that siblings, oh yeah, we can say siblings because that's just more inclusive. And we're looking to be an inclusive community. Um, and I love that part of Sisters in Crime too. I know it's so funny. I'm thinking, can I say these things? I'm president right now. But I'm also a, an individual. I'm also a person who who is from a marginalized community, 
who's um, often been underrepresented, especially in crime writing, not, let alone publishing, right? But yeah. I think that I think that it's important for me to say that that I feel like this is the organization to be in. I'm not putting anyone else down. <laughs> I don't do that. But I think that you know we're working so hard. I see all the behind the scenes work. I see all of that work, and I can say that we are working so hard to make sure that we're creating an inclusive and equitable community, uh, and that means a lot to me. So that is also what Sisters in Crime means to me. That's yeah. wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, well, the, the organization is very lucky to have your uh, leadership right now as we're moving towards a goal and the strategic plan around diversity and inclusion and equity. And also just it, well, that's one of our core values. So um, it is it is the time, but we're also uh, very fortunate to have the leadership that supports yeah. the movement that we're we're all making. Thank you. It's a privilege. It really yeah. is. So I have one final fun question. It's okay. a two-parter, but um, what are you reading right now, <laughs> if you want to share that? And also, what's next for you? You mentioned the book um, that's going to be out next year. So anything you could share about that? Or, or do you have another project right. that you're working on? Or, right. Uh, okay. Future. I am, well, in terms of what I'm reading right now, I am about to start a novel by Naomi Novik, um, and who is known in fantasy um, circles. And of course, the title of it has completely escaped me, but I think it's um, a deadly education, I believe. So both my teenage sons and my husband have read this novel and they have said it is so good. It is so fast paced. So I've been saving it until um, after I finish this current edit that I'm doing. <laughs> so I could just sit down on a, on a weekend and just read it and not have to worry about all the other five million things that one worries about um, in one's life. So that's what I'm reading. I'm looking forward to that. Um, in terms of what's next, so the as I mentioned, the book I'm editing right now, I'm about to turn into my editor at, at Harper Canada, uh, which is not nerve-wracking. I'm actually excited because uh, this will be the first time I've worked with this editor. And I'm really curious to see the notes that she'll send back and, and what... You know, and I'm curious to discover how we'll work together. Um, on my bad days, I'm terrified to discover how we'll work together. But <laughs> today's a good day. So I'm just going to say I'm curious and excited. <laughs> I mean, it's all in there, right? It's all, it's all multiple emotions at once. I contain multitudes. Um, so another thing that I did uh, last year during pandemic times, I wanted to create joy for myself. So I, I tried my hand at writing a romance novel and, um, yeah, so I, <laughs> I, it's a contemporary and I came up with this idea. It's a trilogy. It's a first in a trilogy because I'm excited about these characters I've come up with. So I will be receiving notes from my agent on the romance manuscript next. So that should be fun. So it's so, so funny because I, <clears throat> I chose my agent based on the fact partially of, aside from the fact that she's wonderful, uh, that she also, she reps, you know, crime fiction, but she also reps romance. I thought, this is perfect because <laughs> I want to be writing romance, I think. Um, this was before I started the romance book. So I have that in the works as well. Um, the crime book I mentioned with Harper Canada is a domestic suspense. Uh, I think that's how they're, they're positioning it. 
I'm maybe not domestic, maybe it's just suspense, but I've, I've not tried that genre before. So I'm excited. It should come out, uh, maybe summer of 2022. Maybe that might be the earliest it might come out. Uh, but yeah, I don't have any exact dates yet on that. I'm excited for that one. Well, we're going to put your website and all your social handles and all your information in the show notes for this episode so that people can stay tuned and sign up for your newsletter. Yeah. And then you'll be able to keep them up to date on what's happening. But um, Sandra, thank you so much for this great conversation and uh, for do for your work for Sisters in Crime. And best of luck with your wonderful new projects. And I can't <laughs> wait to hear more. Thank you so much, Julie. It really is a privilege to serve this community. Um, and it's a privilege and an honor to be the first guest for this Sisters and Crime Writers podcast. I know, it's exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Bye now. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast. <laughs>